So I'm Chris Rep. I am one of the elders here at Living Hope. Uh, I get to preach about once a year, so uh, I'm going to do my best and hopefully share what God's put on my heart as something that I think uh, is a blessing to Living Hope, something I already see happening and I hope and pray that God wants to do more of in Living Hope, um, and it's all about uh, the great name of Jesus. So. Uh, it's not really going to be a Father's Day message, so we did a lot of acknowledging of fathers, but I, also, uh, I do happen to have my dad here, so um, before we get started, I just wanted to mention that um, if my sermon's theme is Jesus changes everything, um, <laughs> my dad is definitely an example of that. Um, he's come out of a lot from generations past, done some amazing things, and, and loves the Lord and shares them with uh, pretty much everyone he meets. So he's a great example of this. So, um, yes, we're doing a 13-week summer series on making disciples. And uh, for the first two weeks, Tim got us started in Mark chapter 1, talked about Jesus being baptized by John and calling his first disciples, calling them to be fishers of men, and then showing some of his power in uh, healing and uh, proclaiming what is the gospel message of repent and believe. Uh, And now we're transitioning to Mark chapter 2. And... So the way I kind of prep for a sermon in, primarily is just to read the passage a lot. So I, I would say I spent a good month just kind of meditating on the content of Mark chapter 2 in preparation for this sermon. Um, and I think the theme that uh, came and emerged to me uh, after I read these, it's four stories about Jesus, and I just got this sense that Jesus just changes everything, you know? He, in the ways that he interacted with the religious leaders of the day and what they thought things should be like, and even what the crowds and his disciples thought, he just changed everything. And if you have, uh, there's a note-taking uh, page in your bulletin. If you have that, grab that. And I want you to follow along and take notes. Uh, Some of you already do and love note-taking. And if you don't, I I really would recommend it this morning because I'm going to skim through some passages, hit some highlights, make a a single point or two. But really my heart for this chapter is that you guys would see the themes that Jesus draws out here, meditate on them yourself, and then see how they are actually themes that are helpful in engaging with people that aren't Christians, how they answer all the questions that all of us have about our deepest needs and our deepest hopes and dreams. So to do that, I'd love if you guys use that note-taking opportunity. Um, I think we have some pens. If you don't have a pen, you can raise your hand and we'll get you one. Um, But... I would love you to add a little parenthesis. So your first note-taking task, next to Jesus Changes Everything, I wanted to add a little subtitle. Jesus Changes Everything, parentheses, and it's worth sharing. So that's just your subtitle for today. Um, So the sermon's just going to be about what what that means uh, to the people in these stories What does it mean for us that Jesus changes everything? And what does it mean for our relationships with others and how we should engage with people who aren't yet Christians? Um, So it's got to be about 
seven or eight years ago, that a good friend of Tim's from college, I believe, came to Living Hope and preached a sermon. And he zeroed in on the call of Levi and then Levi going back to the, uh, uh, Jesus going back to Levi's house and just hanging out with Levi and sinners and tax collectors. And if you were there, I was destroyed by that sermon. I mean, I, I was just like, crushed in a good way. God just hit me, and, and I, I just feel like that was the beginning of a call for me to be out there with people and to talk to them about Jesus, people that are considered sinners and not the people, to like kind of go beyond these walls. And then since then, I've sort of evolved and actually become the elder for evangelism at Living Hope. And I'm no expert. I'm not like the perfect example of this, but I know it's a calling that God's given me to take this good news and to go to people and to find him out there where they are, find in their needs and their hopes and their dreams that Jesus is the one that changes everything. So uh, that's what I want to do this morning. Um, I have tons of personal examples and stories of just meeting people and talking with them outside the walls of the church since then that have been a blessing, uh, extraordinary in certain ways. Um, just one quick one, I, I will not ever forget sitting in Panera Bread with two guys who both were struggling with drug addiction. Um, the way that I got to know them was pretty extraordinary, but um, we're sitting and talking about things and one of them, not me pulls out his phone and starts to play the audio of Romans chapter 7. So he's blaring the audio in Panera Bread. I'm the one that's a little nervous, like, why is he playing this audio? And he's telling me why Jesus talking about Romans chapter 7 talks about, you know, struggling man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of flesh. And he's telling me the impact that the gospel has had on his life, even through his struggles. I'll never forget it. It was an extraordinary moment. Um, and that man actually died several years later, but I know God used that time we had together. And it was outside these walls. It was about how Jesus changed everything. Um, and a quick little plug for a podcast, Stepping Stones. That's really the heart for our Stepping Stones podcast, is to talk to you and tell stories of ways that you guys are going outside the walls with the message of Jesus and the gospel and impacting others, um, being blessed, experiencing more of Jesus as you reach people. So uh, if you get a chance, we drop a new one of those each week, and um, it's, it's been a blessing so far. But that's what this is about. That's really what I'm hoping to show through this sermon is that... Um, the messages of Jesus, the identities of Jesus are worth everything, worth sharing with people, and worth taking outside of, of the walls of the church. And uh, we can do that together. So, but we can't do it without prayer. So before I start into the verses, I'd love to pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Um, as Amanda read and mentioned, uh, all authority is yours. And you're always with us when we go on your great commission. So I just pray that we would be stirred this morning by what we read in Mark chapter 2 and who you reveal yourself to be, but more than that, stirred to take that message out of these walls to the people around us, to our friends and families, neighbors and coworkers, our classmates, to find you in those places and in those conversations and 
to see people come to know you as well. Lord Jesus, please speak this morning. Be with us in your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, to your notes. Mark chapter 2. Again, like I said, I'm going I'm to re- ask you guys to, to jot these things down because I, I'm going to hit these themes so quickly, but we could do a series of sermons on almost any one of these questions and identities of Jesus. So I'm going to read the passage, and then while I'm reading, be looking for an exact question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. Because I think this dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus is kind of what is, is the pattern that you see in every single story, and it draws out these themes of Jesus' identity, and that identity is what is worth taking to the people in the world. So, all right, first story, Jesus, our healer. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. All right, listening for the question and the identities that Jesus reveals. Go ahead and jot them down. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Got the first one? (laughs) And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned thus within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them, and they all, so they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So we have this first story, um, starts with four friends ripping the roof off of a house. They're so eager to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they let him down. Um, and it's a cool story. I actually worked with it last week in kids' church, and when we got to paint the picture for the kids. But at the same time, uh, instead of healing the guy immediately, Jesus says to him something pretty extraordinary, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees have a question after that, don't they? Well, that's their question. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So instead of making the Pharisees sort of the flat bad guys all the time, I kind of want to explore their point of view and show us that, you know, some of what they're doing here makes some sense, right? I mean, they they are the leaders of the day and the people who... um, are supposed to show the way to the rest of the Jewish people to God that they know from the Old Testament. And certainly for a human being to say your sins are forgiven would just blow their minds and destroy their categories and 
rightfully at that point, they're asking a question, what in the world are you doing? Because a human being shouldn't be able to say, your sins are forgiven. But there's also a blindness in the Pharisees, even at this point, right? Because what Jesus does next is extraordinary. He heals the man, and they're, they're still they're questioning that he's blaspheming, and they miss the fact that he does something miraculous and amazing, and they miss some Old Testament context that actually talks about the Messiah in a pretty extraordinary ways. So I found one that I just want to close this section out and, and let you know with is I had this picture of Jesus like that morning sitting with his scrolls, reading his devotional, and he found this verse, and then this later in the day like came back to, to reality. I'd never seen this, but it was pretty amazing. If you're, Psalm 103 verse 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Do you see the both put together there? And Jesus does it in front of the Pharisees, and it's amazing. So that, that's it. I just want to make a quick observation about it. I want you guys to know that Jesus is, identifies himself as son of man in this passage, as the healer, as God. And I'm not going to say much more. So that's why I want you to write it down. Because if you look up Son of Man, there's just this amazing connection with Daniel chapter 7. And I'm just not going to be able to go into all of that. But it's worth meditating for the purpose of where we're headed. Because we're talking about this in terms of being like uh, the guys at... Levi, that, that Jesus went to visit at Levi's, that scene that blew me away seven years ago. And I sort of just picture all of these, these identities of Jesus being cues for us to connect with people in our modern lives. So if you can take this uh, healing theme and this God uh, loving and healing us more ways than we can even imagine theme... I'd like to see us translate what we've taken notes on here and reflected on and personally uh, taken in and then see, pray that God would use it in our relationships with people because we do have those relationships. And when we get together with people, we meet a friend at a coffee shop or a neighbor on a walk and get, they get to know us, they start to trust us and it can come out that they're physically sick or that the questions, that the deeper relational questions of, you know, what's wrong with the world? That's what we love to talk about, right? That's what the news focuses on. But this identity of Jesus, that he's not only a, our physical healer, but he heals our deepest needs, our, our need for forgiveness from sin, is a theme that as we understood understand ourselves, we can take out in our relationships with others. And that's what I want to draw out as I look at each of these stories, that there's so much for us, and then there's something also for us as we relate to people around us in our neighborhoods and our classes, and as they trust us and tell us what's going on in their lives. So let's move on to the second story. We're going to look for the same theme and the same insights. Jesus, friend of sinners. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Second question. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this second story is the one that I love and I want to build all these themes around. It's just this idea that Jesus calls this guy Levi, who is a tax collector, which to the Jewish people at the time was totally an outcast. He was a sellout. He decided to work for Rome and gather the money for the taxes and gather as much beyond what he was supposed to gather for himself. That's how he made his money. So the Jewish people hated him and rejected him. He was wealthy, so he had plenty of money, but he didn't have any friends in his nation. And Jesus walks by him and calls him and he comes. And that's what happens in the story. And the Pharisees are, well, and then beyond that, he invites, uh, Jesus invites himself to Levi's house, and Levi gathers, and friends, and sinners, and tax collectors, the disreputable folks are there, the disciples are there, and the Pharisees are kind of on the edges watching in. And the Pharisees' question in this one is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And again, thinking a little bit sympathetically with the Pharisees, I mean, it's, it's true, right? I mean, who you hang out with is important. We're like the, um, as a parent, you know, I spent a lot of time as my kids got older thinking about their, who they spent time with, you know, who's the company that they keep. And um, it does say a lot about the people we spend the most time with. So maybe they were just watching out for that. But at the same time, there's a blindness from the Pharisees, right, that they're by drawing these lines, they're measuring people for the religious, you know, order. Like, do you fit in? Are you a sinner or are you not? Are you in or are you out? And it creates this sort of religious separation that causes them to question why Jesus would even hang out with people like this. And then instead, Jesus blows him away, changes everything, and reveals that he doesn't, he hasn't come For the righteous, he's come for the sick and the sinners, people that admit and know that they need him. And this one, so this idea that Jesus comes for different people than maybe religion would would, uh, identify that, that we should is one that, again, I'm sort of translating into the kind of conversations I think we can have with our friends and family. I actually got the chance, this was... Uh, a blessing and a really cool that a friend of mine who isn't a Christian that I get together with regularly, I was able to ask him if I could go over my sermon with him. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I sort of snuck it in there at the end of our time hanging out. No, he was, he was more than happy for me to share with him. And I got to go through this, way, this idea that the Pharisees had these religious points of view, and Jesus came along and just blew away these religious points of view. 
and changed what he was looking for in followers and who he was coming after and sinners and tax collectors and uh, even prostitutes and people that were just of ill repute. And it was awesome. I, I don't know what his ultimate response will be. It's a, one of those long-term relationships. But I, I could tra- see in his eyes, he was tracking with me, that the religious image maybe that he had of Jesus is different than the Jesus that we can tell people about in scriptures. So as we look at this second identity of Jesus, friend of sinners, I just want you guys to be prayerful and reflect that there are opportunities at you know, as you're walking around your neighborhood to get to know a neighbor and to, they come to know you, trust you, and maybe give them a different idea of what religion is all about. The opportunity's there because of who Jesus is. So let's move on to the third story. Jesus, our intimacy, and our joy. Mark 2, 18 to 22. And now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, People came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this one is just a straight-on question from the Pharisees, right? They, see, they do fasting, John's disciples fast, but they see that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, so they straight-out ask him a question. Why, do they, why doesn't he fast? And I think this third one, uh, their question, is insightful for us and has a, a way that we can connect with others. And the question is, if you guys are taking the notes that why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, again, to uh, give some understanding to the re- their religious point of view, uh, Levitical law had feasting days and fasting days, and so fasting was absolutely a religious behavior that was part of, of the way the Jewish people had developed, and fasting, even in, you know, from there on, has been a way to sort of let, put everything else aside to focus on what's important in God. But then there's the blindness of the Pharisees, right? They use this sort of really religious activity to make a, another measuring stick, you know? It's if you fast, you're, you're with us, and if you don't fast, you're like a loosey-goosey, and you're not, you're not in the right place. But Jesus, in revealing his identity to here, of the bridegroom and of new wine changes everything. And what we can see is that fasting, the, the question that's being gotten at here is what is fasting for, right? There, for the Pharisees, it was a measuring stick. But for Jesus, it was about connection with God. So when he calls himself the bridegroom, 
that's the most intimate relationship most any of us can have in life, right, is a connection with our spouse, the person we're married to. And he is the bridegroom, and he reveals all, later that the church, all of us, are his bride. So that intimacy of relationship that's available in him is what he's revealing about fasting and religious activities. And then new wine is also sort of symbolic of joy, and, you know, he turns water into wine at a wedding, and it brings more joy to the wedding. It certainly has deeper and other symbolism than that, but it's just simply what, how uh, the symbol of being happy, you know, what it means to find joy in life. And in, in changing the categories... Jesus goes from a religious point of view to like real life point of view. And this is where I think it can translate again to our relationships, to people that we're, you know, a coworker that you've gotten to know a little bit, but now maybe you get the chance to invite out for coffee after work and you get to go deeper with them. And questions like these come up as we get to know people. Are you happy? Or am I happy? Maybe they notice that we're happy. The Bible says there'll be a hope in us that people will take notice of, right? Why are you so happy all the time? And what is religion about? Not uh, why do you go to church, not as the religious aspect of it, but as a source of a relationship with God, this intimate bridegroom relationship that is possible for us. So it's, again, an opportunity in Jesus' identity, to see more into what people really need, what we need most, how we're happy in life. It's the question, right? And we have the answer to share with people. And this identity of Jesus is revealed for us to know and to share. So we'll then move on to this fourth story and look at Jesus and the law. Mark 2, 23 to 28. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Got the question there? The Pharisees ask, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? His disciples were just hungry, right? And they grabbed some grain. He tells a story about David and his, his guys being hungry and going and get f- food that they weren't supposed to eat. And it's just what they wanted. They were just needed something to eat. But this, the Pharisees, in their question, point to the fact that there's a fourth commandment, right? I mean, they're not making this, this part of it up. The, the fourth commandment says, honor the Sabbath and, and day and keep it holy. And this is part of the Ten Commandments given by God to the Jewish people. But at the same time, there's a blindness in the way that they're asking this. 
Because this isn't just the fourth commandment. The words don't say you can't have any, pick any grain to eat. This is what they've added to the law, right? This is how the Pharisees started to build and build and build on the law and make more and more like nuances that everybody had to figure out and follow. And it ends up giving them power, them authority to say you've got the laws right or you've got them wrong. And tell people again, whether they're in and out, because they follow what, what the religious leaders say are the rules that we need to follow. And Jesus, in his identity, reveals that he is, again, he repeats, son of man, and he mentions Lord of the Sabbath as well. And the way he explains this is a, a little bit up there in the passage. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this one sort of took me some time to reflect on, like, what's he, what's he talking about here? But I think it's just this return to not Sabbath rules, but, but the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath as God's intention for, for his heart for man to be blessed and to have good. So Sabbath was made for man made for man to rest and to enjoy me and to be with me, just like the rest of the Ten Commandments existed for us to pursue rightly intimacy and relationship with God. And the Pharisees had messed it all up and added all this extra to it and made it about something that it wasn't. So Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and it's about you reconnecting with God in intimacy and relationship. And again... I see this through the lens of sitting and talking to people, inviting them to your home, getting to know them more deeply, and connecting on this level of everybody knows religion has rules, right? And people outside the church, often that's all they see is rules, and they fall short, or they disagree, or socially it's not the, you know, their way of seeing it is not fit with the rules that we have. But our opportunity through the identity of Jesus, is to turn them to see the heart of God in the law, the heart of God in the Old Testament, and the heart of God through Jesus and who he is and what he does. So when they ask us in our kitchen, because they're hanging out with us, you know, why so many rules for religion and what, what's this all about? We have Jesus to point to, and we have our experience of knowing that the laws are to point us to relationship and intimacy with him, and not just more rules. So now I just want to kind of wrap it all up and tie it together and look at where this leads the Pharisees and where it leads us as disciples and how we can, we can share it with others and take it from here. Um, as I said the title, he, Jesus changes everything. And, and we've been seeing that in our lives. I saw it in my dad's life. I've seen it for thousands of years, story after story, right? Um, I actually can't remember it, but I, I shared with my father-in-law a book about the early church. And what was so cool about that book was that the first 300 years of the church after Jesus we didn't have political, the Christianity didn't have political power, right? So it wasn't like mandated from top down become a Christian. There wasn't much um, 
value in doing it socially. So what that book said was that the growth, and it was amazing growth, of the early church was just normal, everyday people, not necessarily the big-shot people, leaders, some, but many just the normal folks talking to other people about Jesus and pointing to who he was, this ident- these identities of Jesus as healer, as friend of sinners, as Lord of the Sabbath, and as our bridegroom, chatting about those things and the normal life activities they were doing, and God moving on their heart and creating more and more and more Christians until in 300 and something it became the official religion and it exploded from there. But it was just this kind of being people and living with regular people that led to that. So that's what I'm inspired and encouraged we can do, is take these identities of Jesus throughout our lives and do it. Uh, But first, I want to look more specifically at how these stories end up, because I think there's both a sober warning and an encouragement for us as we look at the end of this story. First, a warning, honestly, for us to reflect on. The Pharisees, we've been talking about all the questions they asked of Jesus. Well, where does it go for them? If we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we get a glimpse of how this all ends. Uh, Not how it ends, but the next step for the Pharisees. 3, 1 through 6 says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. There's no more questions here from the Pharisees, right? Jesus closes the book on their hearts. He gets angry at their hardness of hearts. He does this super simple and beautiful act of healing a guy with a hurt hand. And all the Pharisees can see at this point is a threat to their power, a threat to their religious way of doing things. And they begin planning the destruction of Jesus where they eventually take part in the murder of the Son of God. So it speaks of a hardness of heart that when you hear the, the truth that Jesus changes everything, you see too much to lose, right? Your religious position and your authority and your ability to kind of set the rules for people. And the Pharisees, that led them to a hardening of heart and a turning to the wrong side of history. But... As the chapter 2 showed, there's a lot of other people in the stories, right? And they go a whole different way in response to Jesus. So as an encouragement to us, I just want to focus in on one connected to the story of, of Levi and him with the, uh, going to his house. Scholars think that because of uh, the stories overlap in Matthew, 
and I think maybe even in Luke, that Levi actually is Matthew. They're, they're one in the same person. And that Matthew is the same person who is, who is given the name the Bible, in the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. So think about the difference for Matthew, or Levi slash Matthew. He's in his tax booth doing his thing, hated by everybody, but nice and wealthy, plenty of money to drown his sorrows. Jesus comes along and calls and says, come, follow me. And he lets it all go. He gives up his power and his position and his money, and he follows Jesus. Not only does he follow Jesus, he invites his friends to come over to his house and starts the first, like, chat session of, you know, on Jesus. These guys are sitting around talking about what is going on. Jesus is here in our presence, and he's doing amazing things. So Levi's house is this first place. And it also says in some sort of scholarly reviews of this that because of the skills that Levi had developed as a tax collector, he was able to kind of shorthand notes. He knew multiple languages, paid a lot of attention to detail. And we think that he was actually the person that walked with Jesus and wrote down a lot of his sayings and specific things that Jesus Jesus uh, did during his ministry. So building on Mark, which was the first gospel that we think was written, he added a lot of information that he had experienced firsthand and put together the book of Matthew. So talk about a different path from the Pharisees. The opportunity to be named as one of the books of the Bible is an amazing direction that is potentially available to us as disciples that we can take our skills, give up control and authority for like the rules and direction of our lives, release that to Jesus, and he will use us for potentially amazing things. (laughs) And as he uses us, it's worth sharing with others what he's done in our lives. And I would suggest that it's, it's not only worth it, it's, it's where the joy is ultimately, to go out there and be telling people about these identities of Jesus. That's why I'm encouraging us to write them down and review Mark 2, because as we, they land on us and we go out and relate to people who aren't Christians, as uh, Amanda shared and as the Great Commission tells, he'll always be with us. And that means out there, it's not just in here. It's also out there when we tell of him. So what I wanted to do to close was, excuse me, just to give a few practical suggestions on as we do accept this role of disciple of Jesus, making disciples, how do we do that with other people in our lives? How do we get into these conversations around our, uh, with our friends and families, neighbors and coworkers? Um, and as we do it, what, what is it going to be like? Um, again, it's a plug for the podcast. Uh, I'd love you to hear from lots more people f- but besides me because we get into tons of little details. Like what about introverts and what about extroverts and what about suffering in your life and what about a family member that you think is closed? We're talking about those things in this podcast and we're getting real stories from you about how that works. So when you listen, I I think it'll encourage you. Uh, But let me give another few practical suggestions. Um, And the first is simple, and I think it fits with all we've been talking about. It's just look for Jesus, not necessarily with results in the process. Because if we're looking for results, if we're looking for everyone we tell about Jesus to fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved, then 
in my experience, you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. God has us to persevere. There's stories all over the New Testament about, you know, leaving the 99 and going after the one and sweeping the house until you find the coin because it takes time. And if we follow what the Great Commission shows us, that the joy of it is not necessarily in the results, but in obeying our Heavenly Father and finding Jesus in the experience. I've had some times I've been pretty soundly rejected, with choice words even, and I still experienced the joy of Jesus because I know I did what he asked me to in that, and that's available, walking with Jesus on the Great Commission. Um, A second practical suggestion is just walk with humility. Uh, I know we know this, but again, the religious leaders, you can, it's pretty easy to get in this place of seeing the rules and what ought to be uh, in, and re- forgetting that we are just as much in need of Jesus as the people that we meet and talk to are as well. And they sense that, you know, people that will listen and allow us to share with them are people that know we care and people that know we're not better than they are. So this humility that allows us to connect with people and then share Jesus is a, is a key to being disciples that that make disciples. Um, Third practical suggestion is just to to try to boil down our language as much as possible. The longer I spend as a Christian, the more big religious words I learn uh, and the more cool they sound to certain people. Uh, But to get through those words to the identity behind them, the point behind them, and share um, what I hope to draw out from these four stories, just that there's essential themes of life that everybody cares about, happiness and healing and hope and intimacy and, you know, what is the point of it all? And those questions have plain language answers that are the gospel, but it takes us being intentional to just speak in our everyday language. So, that is another encouragement for for us to just talk about it as Uh, down-to-earth as we can. And finally, one more practical suggestion. I feel like this one could be like um, another trailer for the the podcast because it's just how God has um, encouraged me evangelism can work in in practice. Um, And it's, it's practice smart courage, smart boldness. And what I mean by that is the idea of being, being bold and courageous and sharing your faith is absolutely all over the New Testament, right? Paul prays for it, who you'd think would be as bold as anybody. And Peter talks about it, and Jesus talks about it. We are to be bold. We are to boldly share the gospel with people. But to me, what I feel like God has shown me is smart boldness is courage and boldness are not this generality, you know, win the war, go be bold. It's boldness and courage is, is, you know, go over that next hill, even though there might be people shooting at me, and I'm courageous enough to take that next step. That's that specific action. So I think smart boldness in sharing the gospel is taking it step by step, and as the next step comes to me, taking that step. So here's some examples. When I think of boldness as a specific step, 
I had think of a neighbors that I know and have maybe waved to from a distance or had like weather type chat with over the years, but I've never gone over and introduced myself and gotten to know them a little more, asked them about their lives. It's uncomfortable, especially for introverts, right? That is a step of boldness that we need to take, but it's not like I have to go and save my neighbor right now, which feels like overwhelming to me, but God says, take this next step and I'll be with you in that step of boldness. So take it. Take the step of boldness and go talk to your neighbor and go a little deeper. And then next is a boldness to move on from just talking to them and getting to know them to having a deeper, more spiritual conversation. Again, it takes a step of boldness, right? We can talk about the weather all, all day long or, hey, Joe, how you doing? What, how's it been? You know, what about this thing at work, blah, 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 for years with people. But is there a way to go deeper with them, to ask about their hurts and about their struggles, to notice that they're not doing great today and ask them what it means and go into deeper things, to tell them about something that is meaningful from church for you and to go to that spiritual level of conversation. That's a step of boldness, right? We cannot do that. We can just stay comfortable, but it's a specific step. And there's ways to take that step as you get closer to people. And so I'm encouraging us to take that specific step of boldness to go deeper into to the meaningful things of life with people. And then there's kind of one more, right? There's the boldness of getting to know people, the boldness of being in spiritual conversation with people, and then there's the, the boldness to go from a spiritual conversation to telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that obviously is another step, right? We can talk about what is meaningful and deep and I love Jesus. Even pray for people and show compassion, do acts of service to people and never get to the point where we tell them what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and what response they ought to have to him. It's a specific step of boldness, but it's built on other steps that we've taken and we can take. So that's the, uh, the final encouragement, is this boldness comes as we walk hand in hand with the Holy Spirit and with each other, and we take actual specific steps to go deeper with people. And then we let the results to God, but we've done the boldness that he's asked us to do to get there. So as I invite the worship team up, uh, I think I want to just end with the gospel. Uh, maybe it's new to you, maybe you know it well, um, but I'd just love to give a short gospel explanation and then pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the courage to take the, have the boldness to share and to get closer and to go deeper and to really share the gospel with our friends and neighbors and family members, co-workers and classmates. So... As I think about it just as simply as I can, God is our creator, right? He's made us. He's created everything. He is the Lord of the universe. That's who he is. And he created us, and we're in his image. We're in his image with amazing potential, amazing gifts, amazing talents. Yet, despite those talents and gifts and human potential, we've chosen a different direction, right? We see brokenness and some of the worst of humanity. So we have this great potential that God has given us, yet we've chosen to do it our own way. We're not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it our way. 
And that leads us to sin, and it leads us to complete separation from God and brokenness. And I'm stuck in that. I have been stuck in that and experienced walking in circles not knowing what to do. And at the end, that could be the end of the story. God has no responsibility at that point. As I've rejected him, I'm a rebel walking away from him to do anything. But instead, he had a plan from before the foundation of the world to send his son Jesus and to bring him into the world on a rescue mission for rebel sinners like me. He chose to come and to know he would be rejected, to love us and live this perfect life, and then to get arrested and beaten and put on a cross and to die for my sins. But that wasn't the end of the story, right? He rose again three days later, showing that he can beat death and he can beat sin. And then the final part of that gospel message is, I have a response that's necessary to that message, right? If this is all true and Jesus has risen and he can change everything, I'm responsible to let go of the way I think the world makes sense and to accept his way of the world, to take Jesus as my Lord and Savior and to walk with him and to invite others to walk with him as well. And that's the gospel. And I can't do it myself. I need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. And I believe he can do it. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that you turned everything upside down. You didn't just leave us in our own confusing religious uh, systems and ways of making sense of the world. You came and you showed us who you are, that you're our healer, that you're a friend of sinners, that you're the bridegroom of humanity, that you are Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, help us to follow you. Help us to know you're with us, especially when we leave this, these walls and go out on mission, Lord. So give us the strength this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday to be on mission, taking steps of boldness to love people, to get to know them, to go deeper with them, and to share with them the gospel. Thank you, Lord. So excited to see what you would choose to do through Living Hope Church. Help us to worship you and obey you and be a part of that. In Jesus' name we